Thanks, Joe. Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. <clears throat> we have almost persevered through the book of Hebrews, and uh, I think it's been, for me anyway, it's been real impactful to go through the what we've been through in the past year and to be talking every week about Christ and about endurance and perseverance. We were having a discussion. That's why I was actually late coming back in here earlier. We were talking about the need for endurance in the Christian life uh, outside earlier. So that's been on my mind, on my heart for a long, long time. And obviously, it's a major theme in Scripture. So I want to read verses uh, 13, 1 to 6 today. And Lord willing, we'll, finish, we'll wrap this up in a couple of weeks maybe. Uh, no promises. We may find something in here that captures our gaze a little more, but probably a couple of weeks and and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll move on. And ultimately, later this summer, probably late in the summer, we'll be doing a, a, uh, an exposition of the book of Esther. Really, my goal there is to do uh, a teaching on God's providence. We'll look at the story of Joseph, a couple of uh, sermons there, a couple of sermons in those first two chapters of Job as well. And the theme is going to be God's providence, the invisible hand. And so you'll want to be sure and be praying for us about that. So let us hear now the word of the Lord is inspired by His Spirit. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 to 6. Where the writer writes, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he, God, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And this is the word of the Lord. And the grass withers and the flower fades and buildings. We move on from those. But the word of the Lord will endure forever. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for this text today. We thank you that you are there and you have spoken. For God, we could have tried to grope our way to find you, and yet we know because of our depraved hearts, we would not. But God, you found us. And our hope is in your word alone, in Christ alone, the living word today, Lord. And so we pray to ask that you would, we ask that you take it this morning and plant it deep in us, and that you would water it with your Holy Spirit. You'd cause O oh Lord, an abundant harvest of righteousness in us. Grant us persevering grace, God. We know that the, the way to heaven is long and the, the road is treacherous and the, many a hill and many a blind curve and many a pothole and many a ditch, and many a temptation. But God, through many dangers and toils and snares, you bring us into your kingdom. So God, work in us persevering grace now. And if there be those here who do not know you, saving grace today, God. Speak to their cold, dead hearts and say, live, live. May I live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, nobody likes a hypocrite. And as Christians, we get, rightly or wrongly, we are often charged with hypocrisy. And I think part of that Part of that is a false understanding, an unbiblical understanding of the Christian faith. 
People expect Christians to be perfect, to be perfected in this life. And we know, we read the Bible, we know Jesus, no, that's simply not going to happen in this life. We will wrestle with indwelling sin, that we will, uh, that we will not be just like Jesus until he comes back in glory. But we also know there's truth in it, right? There's truth in us. I mean, we're not... You follow me around, you'll see me sin, you'll see me not live consistent with the Bible. You follow me around enough, and we know there's blatant hypocrisy in the church. And we don't like it, and the world certainly doesn't like it. It's quick to point out hypocrisy. And now if you have children, especially if you have teenagers, older children, you know this reality. They're pretty quick to point out hypocrisy too, and that's good for you. They can smell hypocrisy if they've grown in church about 10,000 miles away. And that's a good thing <laughs> for you. I think it is for me. We don't like hypocrisy, do we? We don't like it. We see it in others. And I think we especially recoil against it because we see it. We know it's true of us on some level. The great atheistic philosopher, great in the sense of well-known, Bertrand Russell, whose famous quote was, No one can sit at a bedside of a dying child and still believe in God. He famously said that. We're going to dive into that question here in the, the, in the Doctrine of Providence, and we looked at Esther. But he wrote a famous essay called Why I'm Not a Christian. He said, I think there are many good points upon which I agree with Christ. I mean, everybody loves Jesus, right? I mean, the Jesus as you define him, everybody loves Jesus. Anybody say anything bad about Jesus? Well, he mentions Christ here. Many things I agree with Christ a great deal more than many professing Christians. This is an atheist. So I agree with him more than some Christians seem to. There's the idea that we should all be wicked if we do not hold to the Christian religion. It seems to me that the people who have held it to it have been, for the most part, extremely wicked. In other words, he goes on to give extreme examples of uh, Nazi Germany because, you know, they were Lutheran and their building. The church was complicit in some of the Nazi atrocities, and it certainly were. And he talks about Luther and his despising the Jews and some extreme examples there to show that it seems to me that I as an atheist live more in line with Jesus than many professing Christians. We need to hear that, don't we? And we can say, well, he's an atheist. Who cares what an atheist says? We don't care about him. Well, we should. Because we're surrounded by people who are, they don't believe, they're looking for something to believe in, to quote a good old 80s song, give me something to believe in. Well, they're looking for something, but they're not. They're not looking for this religion necessarily, but they're, they're looking at you to see if you are real. And they're looking at me. Alexander McLaren, an old Baptist uh, pastor from the 19th century in England, said, The world takes its notion of God most of all from those who say they belong to God's family. That's us. They read us a great deal more than they read the Bible. They're not reading the Bible. They're reading you. They're reading me. They see us, but they only hear about Jesus Christ. I think Jesus put it this way. Same thing, Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so this is my question for you today, beloved. As we come through all this great doctrine about Christ, the great high priest, and this admonition to persevere in the faith, and my admonition to you today and every Sunday and probably even beyond Hebrews is, are you persevering in the faith? But are you living the Christian life? Does Bertrand Russell look more like a Christian than you do? Are you living what I'm calling the gospel-driven life? Because this isn't just some kind of legalism like, well, you just need to try harder. Oh, that doesn't work. I tried harder for years. I, I rededicated my life, I told you, it's like 157 times. 
and it never took. Why? Well, because the Bible never says that. This is walk with God daily, right? That's, that's what this is about. It's a pilgrimage. It's daily. I was saved in 1977, the best I can tell. 1977. Most of you were not born in 1977. If I had a show of hands, I'd feel really old, but 1977? Are you kidding me? It's a long time ago. And there have been seasons in my life where I've walked with God and, and years where I didn't. And I look like a hypocrite. In fact, I've been called a hypocrite, and they were right to call me the hypocrite. I never knew you were a Christian. Newspaper guy, colleague told me that once, and he was right. He, he had no reason when I was living the way I was. So how are we living? Are we living the gospel-driven life? Are we living holiness, without holiness, and I want to see God, Hebrews 12, 14. Or are we doing it out of the gospel? Or are we just trying harder? Because that will never work. You'll be frustrated, and you won't, it won't last long. Sort of a New Year's resolution kind of Christian. I'm going to do better. I'm going to lose weight this year. I'm going to learn, you know, Bible verse. I'm going to read the Bible this year. I'm going to read a book of the Bible or, you know, something like that. John MacArthur said, The fact that critics usually pick out the worst examples behooves us all to live more by very high standards, to keep the bad examples at a minimum. We who are true Christians have a serious responsibility to live spotlessly to the glory of God so that unbelievers never have a just reason for criticizing the way we live because how we live is a reflection on our Lord. And so it is. And so that's my challenge to us. To live out of the gospel, to live gospel-driven lives that are full of salt and light so your neighbors see you and they say, not only is there something different about them because they can think you're weird and different. I don't mean that. And they may think you're weird, and that's all right if you're weird because a Christian's weird, right? They may say, it's different and it's compelling. Compelling. Is it compelling? I don't, did I just flame out? I don't know. You don't know? I don't know. <laughs> I'll just talk louder. So, is your life compelling? What do you mean by that? Well, we're going to see some things here. Now, chapter 12, again, we've looked at how Jesus is the perfecter of our faith, and we don't not to grow weary. Here are these admonitions, these warnings, and so the whole theme has been perseverance with these warnings that are designed to cause us to persevere, to cause us to, to walk close to God. And so we come to this today. You, you could ask the question the great Francis Schaeffer asked, how then must we live, or how should we live now, since all that's true? So we're going to spend the last couple of weeks here on so how then should it live? Because in Scripture, Scripture is always aligned this way. God, God has made it very clear. There's doctrine and application. Orthodoxy, orthopraxy. This is the way it is. You look at Ephesians 1 to 3, doctrine. You have uh, election and the Holy Spirit and the Trinity, all those things. And then you have, so since that's true, you have this. That's what you have here. You have all that doctrine about Jesus, our great high priest, and this audience is maybe flirting with the return to Judaism because the Christian life is hard. He's saying, why would you want to leave this high priest? And since you need to persevere, how do you persevere? What does that look like? Well, here's what it looks like. So we get to the so what today, the orthopraxy. And we've seen that in chapter 12 too. But he kind of finishes, he lands the plane here. So that we not only claim the name of Christ, but we look like, we live like Christians, full of salt and light. We live lives that are, here's my word for the day, compelling, not mean-spirited and nasty, I know a lot of those kinds of Christians. You know those Christians? I think I used to be a mean-spirited, nasty Christian. And I was kind of in a fundamentalist. And I mean that as a temperament. I'm a fundamentalist, and you are too, if you believe the gospel, the doctrines of the Bible. But I mean, or are we living out of the gospel? Joyful lives full of salt and light that are compelling, but are holy, uncompromisingly holy, but joyful. Not a, well, we've got to be holy. 
We hate it, but here we are. Kind of a mule-faced Christianity, as Spurgeon called it. <laughs> I hope we're not leaving that out. And the engine, I'm going to argue, is the gospel. Because trying to live a Christian life without the gospel is like trying to push 500 train cars down the tracks. Go out here, I live, Doug and Kathy, we don't live too far from them. They've got a train that comes by their house, seems like, every few minutes. And if you were to go out there and try to push those, those cars down the tracks, it, it would be hard. You would never do it, right? What you need is the engine. And see, in the Christian life, that gospel is the engine. But I'm afraid too many of us are trying to push the train down the tracks. And that's legalism, right? I kind of grew up in that. Where I think I was just all effort. So I kept rededicating my life. It's kind of a superstition. So how should we then live? Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Very sobering back in Hebrews 12, 14. I've said one of the most sobering verses in all the Scripture, I believe, at least for me. And so he gives us three main commands. We're going to look at more next week, but three main commands. The first one is this. Continue in brotherly love. Well, that's easy. That's easy, Pastor. We are, man, we love God. We serve a God of love, and the, the culture's always talking about love all the time, right? We need to be loving. Our president, he talks about love, right? We want to be united and loving. And oh, it, our culture is very united and loving, right? Right? We're supposed to laugh. <laughs> ha, ha, ha. Well, not quite. Well, the church, we go to the church, and it's, we're very united. Southern Baptist churches, they're very united and loving right now, especially right now. Anybody heard of the Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting here in three weeks, also called WWE <laughs> by some of us who are going? <laughs> if I come back with bruises and scars, you'll know it wasn't good. We'll see. Pray for our denomination. So, but the Bible says continue in brotherly love, and yet we're not together. We're not brotherly loving one another. I love this word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, right, where all those protests and all that, some of that damage took place last year. A lot of brotherly love there, right? Love you enough to burn your business down. Well, phileo, this is made of two Greek words. Phileo, which means tender affection. Tender affection. And adelphoi, adelphos, which means a near kinsman. means from the same wound. We're to love each other as Christians with tender affection as we would love someone who is blood kin to us. And my kids, I hope they love each other. I told them you'll love each other a whole lot more when you're like 40 than you do now. You'll appreciate each other, and that's true. But they'll love each other, right? I think they will. And you love your, I love my brother. Man, I talked to my brother on my birthday. I just, I, I did even, my family went on in a restaurant. He called me at a bad time, but I didn't even tell him it was a bad time. I was so glad to hear from him. He never calls me. So I call, we, we don't talk a lot. So he's in Georgia, and I'm here, and we talked. I just love that. And my wife said, you love that, don't you? Yeah, he's our brother. Came from the same womb. Love that. Love that guy. And you do too, I hope, your brothers and sisters. But how much more the brothers and sisters in the Lord? How about those with whom you disagree theologically? You're maybe not of your tribe. We loving them the way we should? I don't know. See, I don't know, man. I don't know, Pastor. <laughs> it's not looking good. Jesus gave the most important commandment of all of, to the scribes. He said what? He said, what's the greatest commandment? Well, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Why does he, he gave him two for one, right? It was like a sale. He said, we want the first one. Well, I gave you the second one. Why did he give you the second one? Because without the first one, you don't have the second one. Without the second one, you don't have the first one. If you love God, you will love your brother. You love your neighbor. If you love your neighbor, it's because you love God. Truly, with a, a, what Jonathan Edwards called a disinterested affection, it means you're not loving because you can get something. You can bamboozle him out of money or a job or you're just going to use them. No, that's not love, right? We're all acquainted with that. We've done that or been subject to that for sure. 
But no, a love that's affectious. We we love them with this brotherly love, this real and true affection because we love God, because they're made in God's image. And this is very, very important. Don't you get this in the back of your mind? We're all made in God's image. Every person. Now, we love the brotherhood. That should be go without saying, but we love people. You know, I deal with seminary students a lot. Some of you are seminary students. And I say this all the time, and you've heard me say this if you've done an internship here. If you don't love people, and I didn't say if you're not an extrovert, that's, not, that's a different issue, I'm not saying that. If you don't love people, I doubt you're called to ministry. Why? Well, because people, they're the raw materials you're called to traffic in. That's, that's your business. The gospel comes to change and transform people, right? Well, I love theology. Great. Devils love theology. No, they know it well, and they, they shudder, right? I mean, I love, I, man, I could read books. I could go somewhere and hide out for, you know, a month and read. Well, in a month, I'll love people, but you've got to love God's Word and God's people, right? But do we? Do we? That's another lecture for another time. But we're to love each other, and they go together. The one's a proving ground for the other. There's a reciprocal relationship between them, and you can't have one without the other. That's why Jesus gave them. And really, that's a summary of all of the, all of the godly living of the Bible. That's a summary of the whole of the Bible in terms of the, the uh, uh, what we might call the orthopraxy or the command of the Bible. You're to love God and to love your neighbor. Brother love is important for three reasons. I'll give three. There's more, but here's three. One, it reveals to the world that we belong to Christ. John 13, 35 says, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. He doesn't say, by this you'll know you're my disciples, you subscribe to all five points of Calvinism. Doesn't say that, does it? So, well, of course, that's ridiculous. Well, right. <laughs> no, he says, you're my disciples if you love one another. I want Christ's fellowship to be typified by love for one another. Not perfect unity and, I mean, I want us to be unified theologically, but you, I mean, in, in every, every aspect of life, we agree on everything. Every secondary issue, every tertiary issue, we agree. No, 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 we're not going to agree on a lot of those things. And we're going to leave liberty. We're going to give liberty on those things, I hope, and love the brothers. You say, well, I don't like so-and-so for X reasons. Some, you know, we, we love that we're Reformed Christians, love to focus, major on the minors, don't we? <laughs> well, you know, we serve a very exacting God, and that's right, but we want people to be exacting, and sometimes people just don't work that way, do they? And theology applied doesn't always work that way. In the classroom, yeah, it's easy. I'm going to discipline. I'm going to do this and this and this in my fictional pastorate. And you get out in the pastorate, and lo and behold, it ain't like that. And you actually love these people who are wanting to fire you or want to kill. And, and it just doesn't work the way you thought. I'll just go in. I'll you know, hit the blaze of glory, and they'll all love me. I'll preach like John Piper. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll preach with that passion. I'll, I'll teach like R.C. Sproul. It's going to be great. And it's not like that, as it turns out, because people are much more complex than that. And we're called to love them, Right? And it reveals that we belong to Christ. Secondly, loving fellow Christians reveals our true identity. 1 John 3.14 We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. The litmus test for having passed out of death into life, you love your brothers and sisters. He who does not love abides in death. I've heard, if I had a nickel for every time I've heard a Christian in churches I've served say, I just don't like so and so. I could probably buy you all lunch today I mean in a nice place not McDonald's <laughs> that should never be true and yet we're all that's true of all of, there's I've said it we've all said it haven't I've said it about I've said it 
about people I've been called to lead. <laughs> we need grace, don't we? We need God's grace every day, don't we? This is why we have to walk close to Him because we, we need God's grace. So it reveals our true identity as Christian and Christians. And, and finally, it delights God. Psalm 133, verse 1. Behold, how good and how pleasant is it for brothers to dwell in unity. I think the devil is having a field day in this current debate over social justice within evangelicalism. He's had, especially on Twitter, he's having a field day. There's a country song that says, if the devil danced in empty pockets, he'd have a ball in mind. Well, the devil is dancing on Twitter in the social justice debate on both sides. And it's grievous to say we have sides, and it's an intramural debate for the most part, not completely, but for the most part. I have friends who hate each other's guts over that issue with a hatred. That, I mean, they won't say that, but I know they do. That is grievous to God, and Satan loves that. Because the world looks at that and says, they're no different than us. Look at this. They can't even, they talk about politics just like we do. They hate each other with politics. Because there's an air of suspicion that's grown up in this debate, hasn't there? I mean, I, I told the guy this morning, I got both sides being suspicious of me for different reasons. Over things, uh, it's, 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 it would be humorous if it weren't sad. Being someone who, you know, writes and outside of my local church ministry and does a lot of things out there. I mean, you know, you're always sort of in one camp. By, in other people's minds. But our, our unity delights God. I mean, think about how we, I delight in seeing my children love each other. Oldest son comes home the other day and said, where's Jake? I want to do something with him. He has no idea how, how happy that made me. I'm not trying to make him look good either. I mean, he's just, you know, I mean, I, I'm not saying that to make us look good. I love that because they're loving each other, right? They're loving each other. And, that, and that's a picture of how we want the church, how the church should be, right? Now, they don't always do that perfectly because they're sinners like we are, like we don't do it perfectly, right? But that's how it ought to be. We should, and, and when you guys love each other, the elders, we love that. I love unity. Does that mean we have unplugged our brains and you've plugged it into a machine? that has, We all agree on every secondary issue, all of our politics, every, we have it all together. I mean, we're all pretty similar here probably, but we don't agree on everything. I've talked about this before. What we're unified by the gospel, not I mean, some of us homeschool and we love that and we support that and we think that's great, but but that's not what we build our church around. Or we adoption. Some of us have adopted children. It's a wonderful thing and we think that's great. It's a picture of the gospel. It's glorious, but not, not everybody's called to do that, so we don't build our church around that. And there's some churches built around family integration. We're all together because we're not divided, and we don't build our church around. I think that's a false thing to build. It's great if you want to do that, but we're not for that either. I mean, that's, if you want to do that, that's great. If you want to have your children here, we support that. But we're here for the gospel. That's the unifier, right? Because we may disagree on some of those things. Some of you may say, well, I like the nursery. Some of you say, well, I think it's a sin to have a nursery. Well, okay, we're going to get along with each other, I hope. And disagree on that, right? Secondary. And yet, where do we fight? Secondary issues. I'm not going to that church because, you know, fill in the blank. They don't, I don't know, you name it. Wow. And yet our unity delights God. May God is both pleased and glorified when we as his sons and daughters in his redeemed family love and care for one another. I see a lot of that in this body. I see a lot of care, and I love that. It delights my soul. Because you realize that the three elders, we can't do it all, and you're doing it, and I love that. And he gives two illustrations here at Show Brother Love. One of them is a little strange. You show hospitality to strangers. Okay, that's good. I think this refers both to believers and unbelievers. 
And a stranger is, by definition, someone we do not know personally. We, and we should always be willing to help them we have opportunity on behalf of Christ. And you think of the homeless people on the street. There's so many homeless people now. It is impossible to, to help them. And some of them are, you know, they're playing games. They're not, they work together and they're not really homeless. We know that. We read about that in the newspaper. We have law enforcement. Tell us, I'm, I know about that. So how do we know? Should we never help anybody? I, no, I didn't say that. You say, well, he's trying to take me. I'm not going to be taken. And I'll admit it's very easy to be deceived. We simply don't know. I think we should help people and leave the results to the Lord as much as we can. Again, we can't help everybody. We shouldn't feel guilty that we can't help everybody. Our hearts should go out to them. And we should share the gospel with them because just giving them a sandwich, that's not enough. Or giving them a week's worth of meals or a year's worth of meals, that's not enough. That doesn't feed their heart. We need to teach them how to fish. That's conservatism, baby, right there. That's what it's about, right? We teach them to fish. That's biblical. Just giving them a fish, that's, they're going to return to the squalor. And I've been, as a pastor, been had people call me wanting help. They just want help. They want nothing else. And they're just using it. They, they use the church. That happens. But we can't be responsible for that. We just leave the results in God's hands and be gracious. Be compassionate. Be overly compassionate. Be willing to be taken. I'm sure I've been taken and used before. That's okay. Leave that in God's hands. And he says, this is the strange part. Some have entertained angels unawares. And now we really go all over the places, the evangelicals of this. Had a lady call me once in the newspaper and said, hey, you're a Christian, I know you're right, and a lot of people know you. Would you endorse my book? It's about encounters people have had with angels. Have you ever seen an angel? And I thought, I'm talking to one right now. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> and uh, I didn't say that, but I probably thought it. And, um, and so I did endorse that book. It was encounters with angels. And it was about who people that said they'd seen angels, they'd, their cars had been fixed by angels. And, they'd, and, you know, and my thing is, how did you know? I, I don't know. We don't know, do we? Have we? Well, maybe. Genesis 18 and 19, I think this is the reference. I think there is a biblical foundation for this. This isn't just, well, you're going to, you probably, you know, somebody in front of you at Starbucks paid for your coffee. That was probably an angel driving that car. I know someone who believes that. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe the devil driving that car. I don't know. Right? There's all kinds of, two different kinds of angels. <laughs> Entertaining angels unawares. This is speaking of the story of Abraham and Lot in Genesis 18 and 19. Lot saw three strangers approaching him. He immediately went and killed the fatted calf and fed them. Only later did he find out these were the angelic beings, right? Have I entertained angels? Maybe. I don't know. The, here's the point. Here's the point. I think we miss this. I think it's very simple. I don't think that we make the Bible more complex than it needs to be sometimes. I think the point is that there may be more to people we meet than meets the eye. God's put this person in your life for a reason. There's more to them than meets the eye. Maybe they're an angel. I don't know. I'm not going to ask them. Are you an angel? I've met people who tell me. I met an apostle one time. I told you about that. Apostle Tim or something like that. I'm like, that's pretty cool. I've met an apostle. I've interviewed the president, but never an apostle. You'll meet angels. But you might. I think that's the point. We, we, we don't know. There's more to people that meets the eye. And people are made in the image of God. We need to love people well. That's the, I think that's the main point here. I don't, I'm not challenging us to look for angels, but to think differently about those whom angels serve. We're angels of... We learned back early in Hebrews that they're sent out to serve those who inherit salvation. That's what angels do. They're here to serve us. Are they around us, serving us? Absolutely. Are they invisible? I think usually, maybe not sometimes. I don't know. I've been asked that a lot, you can tell, in ministry. And I mean, that's a good question, but maybe. They are around us. The Bible teaches that very clearly. We need to embrace that, I think, of course, and, and take comfort in that. But they're sent out to serve those who inherit salvation. Hebrews 1.14 tells us, 
They're servant of God's people. Therefore, how much greater is it to serve another of God's people than to serve an angel who's a mere servant? Because this person whom they were sent to serve is made in the image of God. And I think that's the key, even this whole discussion about ethnicity and all that. We're all people in the image of God. I think that's the key. We're all valuable so that we don't worship our ethnicity. There have been various times in this country where different ethnicities worship their ethnicity. I think that's happening right now. It's happened in the past, and it'll probably happen until Jesus comes back because we're sinners. I'm not surprised at that. We're all made in the image of God. I think that gets left out of that discussion. Even in evangelical circles sometimes, we're made in the image of God. That's why I'm very hesitant about building a church according to a certain ethnicity. I've got a different... Uh, we want the church to reflect the kingdom of Christ, of course. But organically, not artificially. And of course, we all believe, everyone in here believes racism is a sin. I, didn't, I have to give, say that so you'll clap for me. We all, we, all you agree with that. I know you do. I, I mean, but we're all made in the image of God. And that's, we, so we're to love the brotherhood and love our neighbors, right? That person at the you know, McDonald's drive through that's got your order wrong for the fifth straight time and you're really annoyed? And you want to tell them off? I'm made in the image of God. And that should stop you in your tracks. And it doesn't stop me often enough, okay? That's an example probably from my own life. Somewhere, <laughs> I've probably done that. You know, this is really terrible. I got my biscuit wrong. I, how dare them get my biscuits wrong? You know, I wanted ham, they gave me sausage. That's ridiculous. Wrong part of the hog. Think they could get that right. We start telling them. My son works in that place. So don't, I don't want you to chew him out. He's made in the image of God. I love him. He, gets your, he didn't get your chicken right. Well, He'll get it right. He's a Baptist, <laughs> right? We need to love him because you don't know who, what, what if that person's a Christian? They're going to think, boy, we need to evangelize that pastor's wife there or that pastor. We need to evangelize them. They're, they're lost. There's more to them meets the eye. Secondly, another second example, brotherly love. Remember those in prison, those mistreated, verse 3. In other words, show them sympathy in the midst of a trial. What worse trial than to be arrested? And what's in view here is the Hebrew Christians were being arrested for their faith. Will there come a time in this country when you will be arrested for your faith? It is absolutely possible. If we talk about homosexuality the way I'm fixing to talk about it here in this country, I think it could happen. I'm talking about it because the text talks about it. We remember those in prison, as, in, as though in prison with them. I mean, we should minister to brothers and sisters in prison, and certainly I think this is speaking of that, that but I don't think uh, that brothers and sisters are arrested for their faith. But as Christians, we shouldn't limit our hospitality. Say, so, well, we're going to despise those people who are pagans out there get arrested. We have anything to say to them. Oh, no. In fact, this church, we had a ministry, a jail ministry, the Gary Dunbar, who was our dear brother who's going home to be the Lord because of a car wreck a couple years ago that we were involved in, deeply, getting, getting much more deeply involved in when he died. I'd love to see somebody take the mantle up with that. I worked in prison ministry and I lived in Georgia many years ago for, I guess, two or three years through Prison Fellowship, Chuck Colson's ministry, there in my hometown and in, in different places in North Georgia. And we saw great fruit come from that because they're, they're, they're at the lowest place they're ever going to be in their lives, these men and women are. We've had some of our ladies go out to the women's prison here I know Tracy and Monica, maybe some of you have gone out there and ministered to them. That is biblical. <laughs> That's mercy. That's compassion. I want to see more of that. So here's my challenge. Somebody take up Gary's mantle. We'll call it the Gary Dunbar <laughs> ministry to the, those in prison. Gary had a great passion for those, especially in the West End. 
some of the minorities over there who'd been in prison, who'd fallen, you know, fatherless homes and things like that. And Gary had real heart for those people. And I'm his people, and I love that. That's real. That, that's real mercy right there. Ray Stedman, a commentator, said, Even those in prison justly merit Christian help. Since Jesus ministered to the guilty and, condemn, and the condemned simply because they're human, we're human beings. Matthew 25, 6 and 40 says, I was, Jesus said, I was in prison and what? You came to me. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to what? To the least of these. You've done it unto me. The least of these, why? Because they're not worth anything. They're worthless. No, 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 no. They're made in the image of God. They're, they have great worth. No, they're the least of these because they can't do anything to return the favor. The man, the, 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 the people who got saved in the prison ministry I worked in, they couldn't do anything for us. Some of them were doing, one man was doing life without the possibility of parole. Robbed a Domino's pizza place and killed a, Killed some people there. He wasn't going home. He didn't come to Jesus. But he heard about Jesus, and we made sure he did. They're at the lowest point they're ever going to. That, that's his point. Remember those in prison and mistreated. And that shows us who we really are. Do we have that kind of compassion? That's, that's, that's the life of a person who's sold out to Christ and not a hypocrite. Right? And that's going to be a means of your perseverance. So if you're ministering to them, boy, you're going to love God more. You're going to love people more. And sometimes I feel like I'm going to speak to my own theological tribe here. Sometimes I feel like in the Reformed community, we're more concerned about having I's, I's dotted and T's crossed theologically. We are people. And people are down and out, and we just think, well, they don't have a Ph.D., so we don't have anything to say to them. And that is a disgrace if we think that. If you get that from our pulpit, you tell me. I'm sorry. That is not what we've ever sought to communicate here. And God forbid we ever do. That is the last thing we want you to get. Theology is important. Absolutely. It should drive us out into the, the, out into the street, shouldn't it? It's got to land on the ground, and it should. Secondly, and I think I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm only going to make it to the second point. We're getting, getting late here. That's all right. The second main point, second admonition he gives here. Let brother love continue, and secondly, hold the purity of marriage in highest honor. Boy, this is a... I never in my life believed marriage would become controversial 20 years ago. Well, that's not controversial. Man and woman, covenant relationship, yeah, everybody believes that, even non-Christians. Boy, is this a... What I'm going to say is controversial. It's just what the Bible teaches. It's what Christians have believed for 2,000 years. And the, the media acts like we're, this is some brand new thing that they oppose homosexuality and same-sex marriage. Christians ought to get with it. What's wrong with them? What's, we believe it for 2,000 years. That's a fundamental Christian ethic. It's nothing new. Not at all. That's a, it's just a sheer case of historical theological ignorance. And I worked with the media. And believe me, they don't know history. The, ones I, the folks I worked with or the Christian faith. They all think we're Catholics. Al Mohler is the sort of the Pope of the CSBC, someone called him. They really, because they really thought he was like the Pope. They weren't being funny. They're like, they thought, and, and you know, it's not the way it works. So is he the leader? Since he's the head of the seminary, he must be the cardinal that said, no, 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 that's not even a right understanding of Roman Catholicism. Goodness gracious, people. <laughs> You're going to wonder, don't you? We've always believed, right here, this admonition to hold marriage in the highest honor. In our, 
our culture is awash in sexual perversion and indulgence. I mean, the only sin now is to say that there's guardrails around sex. And yet it's always been a mark of Christian purity that we should be dramatically different in this area. I mean, Paul strongly denounces sexual sin in many of his letters, more, than, uh, more often than not listing it first among the sins we must shun. He says, Galatians 5.21, of sexual, the sexually immoral, he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This whole litany of sexual immorality, and he said, if they're participating in this, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that's sobering. It should make us hate them. It should cause us to have compassion for them. That they're, they're captive to this lifestyle. That they're imprisoned to it. They're not in prison, but they're imprisoned to something that's almost far worse. Sexual immorality. Of course, that's true of fornication, homosexuality, transgenderism, so-called. I mean, it's just, there's no end to this, is there? And you see how the trajectory, it just goes, it gets more radical and more radical and more radical all the time. That's what sin does. We shouldn't be surprised. Spurgeon spoke of a downgrade. A sin is a downgrade, and, and doctrine is a downgrade away from God. It's as far we're getting, again as far away from God as we can possibly be in His design. Homosexuality is the confusing of genders, and that's part of maybe what's in what's in, in view here. Because the word is porneo, is kind of a catch-all for sexual immorality. You know, we get our, our, our term pornography from that word porneo. I mean, same-sex marriage and transgenderism are transgenderism are strictly and clearly forbidden in God's sacred scripture. We have to be clear about that and stand on that. And it doesn't mean we're mean to these people. We love the people. We have compassion for them. We proclaim the gospel so they're being set free from these godless lifestyles. We want to see, I mean, I have neighbors in traffic in this lifestyle. I want to see them set free. I want to meet them in heaven one day. And them saying, the gospel did this. Look what the gospel has done for you. Look what the gospel did for me. In Romans 1, it's a clearly, therefore God gave them up to the lust of their, in the lust of their hearts and impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And they say, then he goes on to say this, Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. What's going on right now? God's given people up. For the women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. This could not be more clear, could it? There's a natural way, God's natural way, and then there's this, contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error, which is the eternal condemnation. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. That is what's going on in our culture, brothers and sisters. I hear people say all the time, well, the judgment of God's coming. I think the judgment of God is here. When you can't decide whether you're a man or a woman after being a man or a woman for 30 years, the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the strong delusion God promises to send, it is here. I firmly believe that. It's here. I mean, the most basic fundamental thing about you that's part of your essence and you don't know which it is, and you've got to opt for all these different pronouns, and you're offended by those who are that, that's a sign of God's judgment. It's not coming, it's here. And yet it's not heightened to the degree that we deserve. If we got what we deserve, God help us. God help us all. 
I mean, fallen aspects of the culture. The church is trying to normatize this in some way. So they talk about the gay Christian. That is a scandalous term to me. That's like the adulterous Christian, the porn-loving Christian, the bank robber Christian, the axe murderer Christian. Those are just might as well be synonyms as far as I'm concerned. And yet, there are Christians in ministry who say, well, you know, that's a special category. At least they communicate that. There's sort of a special category we can sort of look the wrong way. No, we call them to repent, to lovingly, lovingly, compassionately, not in a way that's, of course, mean-spirited or at all. That's all I'm saying. But we love them if we tell them the truth. Well, the gay Christian, that's a conflict in terms. That's a, an oxymoron, an unbiblical oxymoron, a deadly oxymoron. Fallen aspects of the culture are a product of the fall and should never, never, never be considered normative. Never. Never. We never normatize that. Never, 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 never. Nice. Adultery. Speaks here of adultery. Breaking the seventh commandment. In our pornography-plagued culture, this sin is rampant. I mean, the divorce rate, a news article in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution about 15 years ago did a, divorce, uh, did a, a, a story on divorce rates in North Georgia counties and my home county. You ready for this? Among 20, the divorce rate among ages 20 to 50 was 80%. 80. And I know I could name here and here and here and here, everybody I went to school with, except me and like three people. Small town. <laughs> 80%. And the leading cause? Adultery. Unfaithfulness. That staggers me. 80%. That's staggering to me. And that speaks to the culture, though, doesn't it? We just, we find somebody we like better because we don't take marriage seriously. Marriage is an exclusive covenant relationship between a man and one man and one woman for a lifetime, but we want to redefine it. SCOTUS has redefined marriage. God hasn't. And God won't. Adultery is part of this too. And you say, well, that's a load of bad news. Goodness, are you just going to focus on really negative things this morning? No, because there's good news. And the fact that you and I as sinners sitting here redeem God's people, there's good news in the gospel. That's why this is the gospel-driven life and not the works-driven life. What about, you say, well, I've blown it in some of these areas. Is there good news from me or am I just condemned? Oh, no, there's good news. Here, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. I love this. He says, Or you do, know you, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Excuse me. I think I have it up here. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And you say, Oh, man, that's bad. That is bleak. And it is. But look what he says next. And such were some of you. Past tense verb. Such were some of you. What happened to you? Well, you were washed. You're washed in the blood of Jesus. Because there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were, you were before God declared righteous. You were justified, declared righteous, declared sanctified positionally before God. How? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the Spirit of our God. That's it. That's it. That's the good news. Such were some of you. 
were. I look at my life and I say, such were some of you. I've been involved in egregious sin, sadly, in, in my life and in, in long, long ago past, but such were some of you. That's good news, isn't it? That's good news for your lost neighbors. That's good news for maybe someone has come to you and say, you're a Christian and I've committed adultery or my wife's committed adultery. Is there hope for us? What should we do? Flee to Christ. Flee to Christ. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I think that's a good place to end. I didn't get nearly where I wanted to go, but that's all right. And that's my question to you today. I think it would be really easy to sit in this church, to live in my house, to live in your house, to go to this seminary here, and to run in this pack, in this tribe, and be deceived. I think it'd be really easy. Because you look like a Christian, you, you sing the Christian songs and come to the Christian church, but are you washed in the blood of Christ? Have you really availed yourself of that fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins? Are you able to live the gospel-centered life? Are you able to hitch your wagon to that gospel and be pulled along the tracks of sanctification to be made more and more like Jesus? Are you just behind those, those cars trying to push it with all your effort and you're frustrated because you say, I've turned over a new leaf, I've done New Year's resolution since like 1999, nothing good has happened. I'm here to tell you it won't happen. Nothing good will happen unless you trust in Christ Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins, your only hope of eternal life. That's the message today is flee to him. If you're a Christian, it's persevere. Look at those two marks, look at another mark, a couple more marks next week, Lord willing. We're just going to pick right back up here next week. That's, I think, what we should do. A new building, but same text, right? Same Bible. Such were some of you. What a glorious gospel. What a glorious God that even though we had lived lives like this, like Romans 1, there's hope. There's hope for my neighbors. There's hope for your neighbors and your friends. Pray for them. Take the good news to them. Love them. Let brotherly love continue. Love the body, but love all those made in God's image, which is to say everybody. And let us live lives full of salt and light for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, I'll realize I've labored long over this. But Father, we know you're not out of time. Father, we, I, I pray for our body, for those who are here and those who aren't here, that, God, we would be a body that it lives lives full of salt and light. That if there are those who are imprisoned, sin's dark night and sexual immorality, are they full of, their hearts are full of hatred toward their brothers, that you would set them free through the gospel. They would live lives free, set free by the gospel, by your grace to live for your glory. You do it in us, Lord, for your glory and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.